0: We are journeying with Jesus to the cross for Lent. We have gone through Jericho and into the to the town of Bethany. We have paraded through the streets with Jesus for Palm Sunday. And now on Monday of Holy Week, Jesus gets into some conflict at the temple. Let's begin by getting an understanding of this very important place. The city of Jerusalem was an old Canaanite city. It's actually a city that Joshua and the people had trouble getting rid of because it was a well-defended City. And uh, this original part of the city is on the lower part of the city, what's now known today as the City of David. The Kidron Valley, which separates uh, the Mount of Olives to the east from the city, uh, would sort of ramp up into this area, so it was very defensible. And then there was a spring there, the Gahon Spring, that uh, David uh, or that the Jebusites would uh, have to protect, but it gave water. To the city there. Now, uh, this this area is tr- probably an ancient uh, sacrificial place for religion. Uh, it's believed that it might be Mount Moriah, traditionally held to be Mount Moriah, which is where Abraham takes Isaac and his faith is tested in Genesis twenty-two. Later, David and his men, David's men, actually sneak through the Gihon Spring Tunnel and up into the city through the water source and conquer it, and becomes David's city. Uh, Jerusalem becomes a really important place because uh, it's not quite in Israel or in Judah. It's kind of on the border, and it was, it was uh, by, by pick, putting his capital there, David is not playing favorites with either the north or the southern tribes. Um, so uh, David takes over this important city. He moves the Ark of the Covenant to this area, and he wants to build for God a permanent temple to house the Ark. Um, Now, God won't let him do it because he was a king of war. But David does purchase a threshing floor. In other words, a place up 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 high where wind would travel through. So when you would work with your grain, uh, the the chaff would fly away and you'd be left with the wheat. And so David buys this and uh, God has Solomon build the temple. So Solomon takes this this upper part of the hill across from the Mount of Olives, and he sort of flattens it out. Okay, it was a little more pointy of a hill. He, he actually uses uh, people to, to flatten that out, to make a surface area on top of the mountain, and uh, builds a temple there. He uses his great wealth to build a large and beautiful temple. In fact, people would go out of their way to see the temple in Jerusalem. It wasn't on a major trade route, um, but it was nearby to some trade routes, and so people would stop to see Solomon's temple. This temple is also called the First Temple because it was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 or 587 B.C. Uh, it was not rebuilt until about in, and opened until 516 B.C. Thanks to Ezra and Nehemiah, they finally built, rebuilt a temple called the Second Temple. And so from then on, the period where that temple stands is called Second Temple. Temple Israel, now um, it was not near as elaborate as the first temple because they were exiles that had returned and they didn't have the money that Solomon had, and so really the temple was was not as nice. It was not as neat as the first temple. That is until Herod the Great decides that he is going to embellish the temple. Now Herod is known for his amazing building projects. What he does is he takes that little mountain that Solomon had made. And he actually uses vaulted uh, ceilings and layers to build a large, a much larger temple mount. And at that point, it's really not the mountain anymore. It's like a big building. And so he makes this large surface area, a a very large temple. uh, In fact, uh, probably twice as big as the the, uh, dome of the rock that sits there now. And Herod builds all this. Now, the, the Jews are not real happy about this because Herod is not really a believer, but um, but they also want the grandeur of the temple. Um, and so that's that whole area is called the temple complex or the temple mount. Sometimes it's actually just called the temple. And then from there, um, you, you would have... Uh, off to one side, the Antonio Fortress, which was Rome's way of kind of keeping an eye on what's going on at the temple. You would have all kinds of buildings and and uh, meeting spaces and storage areas, and then you'd have an inner area, and, and you could kind of think of of the uh, um, the temple in sort of uh, a sort of concentric circles. Okay, the outer court was called the Gentile court; anybody could go there. Then you had to be Jewish to go into this. the further court, the court of the women, where women were allowed. And then there were smaller courts where lepers were allowed and different groups had their meeting. And then man, only men could go into the main area. And then inside was the holy area. Priests went in there daily to take care of things. And then the holy of holies. And only uh, a priest would only go in there about once a year. Okay, so you can imagine... Uh, the, the, the beauty, the splendor, the spectacle as people from all over the place would come to this large courtyard uh, to hang out, to be a part of the action and see what important people came um, to see the temple. Now, the second temple stood until about 70 AD when the Romans came and absolutely destroyed it. In fact, we've never been able to find any other um, any remnants of this temple because they literally threw everything off of the temple mount. Um, The temple has has became somewhat of a a dump after that. Uh, Jews really didn't go up there because they weren't quite sure where the Holy of Holies was, and they thought that maybe the Ark of the Covenant was buried somewhere up there because the Ark of the Covenant gets lost at some point. And so it just kind of gets left. Christians start worshiping at the Church of the Holy Sepulcher until uh, much much later, when uh, Muslims come and are looking for a space to worship. And uh, they're offered some space at uh, the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, but they want their own space. So they find this area basically abandoned, clean it up, and start to worship there on uh, on uh, the Temple Mount. Or uh, what they would call al the the holy place. Now, Jews believed that when the temple was destroyed, the Spirit of God moved to the closest structure that it could be. So the Spirit of God that was in the Holy of Holies, that was the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, moved to the closest structure that it could, which is the retaining wall, the the walls that Solomon had originally built and then Herod had really embellished to hold up this giant temple mount. So Jews worship at that western wall. That's the holiest place in Judaism today, the Western Wall, or the Wailing Wall, and because they believe that that's the close that's the closest they can get to where the Holy of Holies was, they pray there. They put prayers on pieces of paper and stick it in the wall there. Um, the Muslims, meanwhile, built the Dome of the Rock, and it was finished in six ninety one A.D. Uh, and it was the first major Muslim sanctuary. Now the third hol- holiest site in Islam today. So even to this day, this area is a site of worship, of conflict, of tourism, but it's always been like that. Jesus had been there many times in his life. He was dedicated there at his birth. He was teaching in the temple at age 10 when his parents returned home, only to find that he had stayed behind. Um, Jesus had come with his parents many times to, to this place, and now with thousands of pilgrims, he comes to this temple again, and in fact, some of the, some of the things that Herod had started at this temple was still being built probably around the time of Jesus and so not only was it chaotic and there's all these priests doing all this and thousands of, of pilgrims, um, it's probably a little bit of a construction zone when Jesus is there. I mean mm-hmm. it's just total chaos. Now, now, when Passover came, it was the festival that everybody wanted to be in Jerusalem. And so, so all these pilgrims would come from all over the place. And what was the problem? Well, the problem was all these Jews from all these different sa- cities and places spoke different languages. And so how do, you, in, how do you handle that in terms of getting them the right things for the sacrifices? And then a lot of them had traveled a long distance. So you couldn't just bring your own lamb from uh, Tarsus, where Paul lived, for example, your your lamb wouldn't make that journey. So you had to get there and you had to buy your lamb or bull or or pigeon or whatever you were called on to sacrifice at the time. But how do you do that when you're uh from Rome or you're from Tarsus and your money system's different? Well, then up there on that up there on that temple mount in that courtyard, this big complex, there would be all these people that were uh were some of them were money changers. So they would take your money from so and so and they would give you money that worked at the temple, and the temple had sort of its own coin system uh, just to be able to handle all of these issues. There would be dealers that would have all these really good lambs, and then there would be the pigeon dealer over here. and then, you know, So you could see like the, the business of this whole temple mount. Like, imagine all these people speaking all these languages, trying to barter for their lambs, trying to, trying to get all these things together. The, the chaos that this would be, the place would be totally packed. So Jesus walks up there on a Monday, and let's pick up in Mark eleven fifteen 15, to see what Jesus does. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house.'" Of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and scribes heard it, and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, he went out of the city. So the text says Jesus does six things here. First, he drives out the sellers from the outer court. So everybody who's selling sheep, lamb, pigeons, uh, he kicks them all out, chases them all out. Um, you can imagine the chaos. Like you couldn't necessarily bring all your pigeons with you. So imagine you're kicked out, but all your lambs are still back there at the temple. And, and were there other people that were selling other things? Maybe memorabilia. You know, get your uh, temple tunic. You know, get your get your uh, your blessing of a necklace that that your amulet that you would get at the temple. I mean, there may be all kinds of trinkets and souvenirs, good luck charms and memorabilia. And this week, remember, all these people, this would have been a big sales week. These people got to get their lambs and make all their sacrifices. So Jesus drives out the sellers. Then he drives out the buyers. So not just the people who are selling. He actually drives out all the people who are there to buy. A lot of these people have traveled a long way. He kicks them out. Then he overturns the tables of the money changers. Now imagine the chaos that this would be. Somebody's got a table, and they've got all these different currencies. And they're probably sitting next to other money. This is not one money changer. There's multiple money changers. And they're all out their money. And they're all exchanging money and competing with each other against, uh, to give better rates. Right? Jesus turns over all their tables. What does that mean? It means all the coins are on the ground. Right? It means, it means everybody's stuff is mixed together. Nobody knows what money is mine, what money is Imagine the fight later on. Are people diving on the money to get the money? Okay, this would have been mass chaos. Fourth, he overturns the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now, pigeons were the, the cheapo sacrifice. If you were too poor to get a lamb or a bull, then eh, you just sacrificed a pigeon. And the Old Testament made allowances for that so that everybody could come to the temple. But even, even those who were trying to sell pigeons, he turns over their chairs, kicks them out as well. Even the poor can't make sacrifices on this day. And then, fifth, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So, not even the people that brought their own lamb from home, their own pigeon, their own bull, their own whatever, they're not allowed on here either. Like, he's not letting anybody carry anything across the courtyard. Nothing new is coming in, nothing's going out. Things are totally shut down at the start of the busiest week of the year for the temple. Mass chaos. Mass chaos. Number six, Jesus then defends his action. To do that, he uses two different Old Testament scriptures. The first is from Isaiah 56, 7. I'm going to read 6 and 7. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, Temple, and make them joyful in the house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted in my altar. For my house shall be called house of prayer for all peoples. So Isaiah is expecting that the holy mountain, the Temple Mount, will welcome foreigners in to the covenant. It'll be a house of prayer with great burning offerings and sacrifices. Jesus combines Isaiah with Jeremiah. Jeremiah tends to be a little more of the angry, bitter prophet. Jeremiah 7, 11 warns that the house of the Lord can also be corrupted. Here's the verse. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So Jesus puts these two together and says, okay, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. But you know what it's become? It's become... A den of robbers. Now, some people read that phrase "den of robbers" and assume that that what's really happening here is all these people are ripping people off. Okay, they're actually robbing people. The scales are bad. The money changing is not good. But here's here's the problem with thinking about it just like that: is it doesn't account for everything Jesus does. Right? If the money exchanging is the problem, how come the poor can't buy pigeons right now? How come people that have brought their own lamb can't cross the temple and make their own sacrifices? See, I think something more is going on here. Okay? Whatever you want to do to explain what Jesus does, it's got to take into account all of these actions. Okay? It's got to make a sense of everything that he does. And, And for heaven's sake, Jesus has been to the temple. He's made sacrifices. He's been here on many a Passover. And he never got ticked off and turned all the tables over and did all this. No, I think what Jesus is doing is, is not being at odds with the old sacrifice system, but, but critiquing the transactional nature of the system, the business of spirituality. And, and I think that Jesus is saying not that the, old test, that, like, that the sacrifices in the Old Testament are done and over and they were terrible. No, but what Jesus understands is that, that by Friday I'm going to die. The ultimate sacrifice is here, and and from here I'm going to make this system is going to be obsolete. It's going to be made, it's going to be replaced by something new, because after all, the temple is corrupt, and it's economic and it's transactional, and people are being put off, and not everyone is as welcome as other people. So what Jesus is kind of saying is, is I'm going to be the new sacrifice. I'm going to be the new temple. And Paul takes it even further. In 1 Corinthians 6, he calls you and I the temple. Because now the Holy Spirit lives within us, not within a place that we have to go to, that we have to exchange our money to get to. See, God put that system in place, but it was for a season. It was a place until Jesus came. Two other things are worth noting in the story. First, the humanity of Jesus. Okay, we, we saw this when Jesus wept for Lazarus. When... Um, When he weeps for Jerusalem, we now see the anger of Jesus. One of the things that the gospel writers are trying to make sure we remember, and and then it it becomes important after the resurrection of Jesus, is that he's human. He has human emotions. And the anger is not necessarily a sin. Yeah, you can be angry about the right things, the right amounts, and it's not a sin. We see the humanity of Jesus, that that he, he feels pain, he feels joy, he feels anger. And as he goes to the cross, he's not just pretending to be human. He's fully human, which means he's going to feel all of that pain. Second, note that this event in the temple is joined by other controversies throughout the week that I'm not going to go into in detail here in this sermon. But Jesus continues to create a stir at the temple. That's the center of of action for Jerusalem. He's sort of picking a fight still. Okay? Again, we remember that Jesus is intentionally going to the cross. He knows what's coming. He's picking this fight. He's still going at it. And, and the, the popularity of Jesus and, and him upsetting the work of the temple is now really ticking off the priests. He's really taking off the religious elite. And now they're going to have to get rid of him. The wheels are turning. Okay, Friday is coming. The cross is coming. And Jesus is purposefully, he could have avoided the temple. He's purposefully picking that fight. He's purposefully heading to the cross. Why? To save, to be the temple, to be the sacrifice, to give us access to God where we don't have to stay in our concentric lanes and some people are closer and other people. No, so that the Holy Spirit can be at work in our midst. Right? He's giving total freedom. Let me ask you, are, are you living with that kind of freedom? You live that kind of, of prayer life, where it's, it's, a, it's a house of prayer for all people, where there's joy in the offering, where there's joy in what you give of your life to God. Or is it really transactional? Does that feel more like a business transaction to you and your faith? Because I don't think that's the kind of faith Jesus is calling us to. It seems to me like the kind of faith Jesus is critiquing here. So as we head towards the cross, be thinking about your own faith. Is it transactional or is it really a gift of love and of grace?